0: I'm Henry Labonta and I killed James T Kirk.
1: Welcome to the first episode of CGI Fridays, a brand new podcast from the companion.app. I'm Ed Kramer and I've been a professional CGI artist for almost 40 years, uh, which culminated in 12 years at Industrial Light and Magic, where I was very fortunate to be asked to supervise the scarab beetles from The Mummy, the uh, rock monster from Galaxy Quest, and sequences from all three Star Wars prequels. And uh, of course, I also worked on the companion fan favorite film, the original Stargate. Since uh, I got out of the movie business, I've been teaching CGI at the university level for more than a decade. And in this series on CGI Fridays, I'm going to be catching up with some old friends from the industry to talk about their careers and their work, and to give you a damn good reason to sit alone after everyone's left the theater watching the credits all the way to the end. So for episode one, I'm really excited to be catching up with my old friend and colleague from Industrial Light and Magic, Henry Labonta. Henry's going to talk about his uh, Oscar nomination for Twister, how he parted the Red Sea in The Prince of Egypt, uh, how he killed off James T. Kirk, how he unleashed mechanical spiders on Tom Cruise in Minority Report, and what it's like to work with Steven Spielberg, which he did on both Minority Report and AI, Artificial Intelligence. So, Henry... Tell us a little about yourself. Uh, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school?
0: Oh, thanks, Ed. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me to do this. It's always great to see you again. So yes, I was born in Baltimore, uh, although my family moved a lot. So we lived in Europe and all over the US uh, when I was a kid. And I went to Minneapolis College of Art and Design and the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. You know, right about that time, people were starting to do digital things and image processing things that was actually analog, computers making crazy, crazy images. That was a great start for me um, in getting into this this industry. Tell a little bit about how you and I kind of... Sure, sure, sure. We met in New York City. Maybe I was at NBC New York at the time, and I think you were at CompuGraph, maybe? All right, I got that right. We were making magic for television, uh, mostly TV opens and such, and and commercials and things like that at the time, you know, really some of the first people to do things in video that nobody had seen before and uh, really became common uh, music videos and and all sorts of other uh, uh, formats. We were both on the Bosch FGS
1: 4000, you at NBC and me at CompuGraph. And I remember I saw a swaying palm tree and, and I thought, how in the world did they do that swaying palm tree? How did he make something bend like that in
0: CGI? Yeah, you're one of three people in the world that probably remember that. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it is a weird story because you couldn't do it on the Bosch, but you could program the Bosch with this really kind of basic command language type programming. And you would have to write in hundreds and hundreds of lines of code to do it. So what I did instead is I wrote, I think it was in Pascal, I forget, a program on a Mac that generated the data for that through a wire that was kind of soldered together to go into where the keyboard was for the Bosch. (laughs) I sent all those commands to the Bosch. Back in the days when you kind of did stuff just through brute force, really. I think you created each individual tree as a separate
1: object and and then animated between them, right? That's right. Yeah, it was
0: crazy. That would have been in, what, 84? I'm thinking uh, more like 85, 86 in that range. What was the next step?
1: <laughs> and and I have a feeling I know this because uh, I was there too.
0: That's right. I ended up going down to Atlanta to work for a Crawford Design Effects. We were a post-production house and developed some really cool stuff for mostly TV show opens, but a lot of commercials also and national commercials, including you know um, car commercials and Coca-Cola and Beauty Rest and oh my gosh, so many different things and lots of TV show opens and we were lucky to have Ed Kramer there as well as a bunch of other brilliant people working with us.
1: It's amazing how many people from Crawford ended up working at Industrial Light and Magic and Sony and DreamWorks and uh, you know all, all the big companies and and some are still doing it. And I remember that Simmons Beauty Rest spot. You wrote some code so that as the animated character made more pressure on certain parts of the the yeah, you wrote code that changed the color of the spring so you could actually see it
0: visually, which was kind of like one of the first scientific visualizations. You know, I think that might have been one of the first shows we used RenderMan like 1.0 on, and Barry Dempsey was working with us. and. He heard about RenderMan at SIGGRAPH, and he's like, "We gotta, we gotta use this. That's the coolest thing." I was like, "What's RenderMan?" I still have the RenderMan 1.0 manual. Like, like they think the first one they ever published. And you know, with Bill Schultz's help, we figured out some really cool spring mesh systems too, where we're doing dynamic simulations. Um, and having been an art school kind of guy, it was fun to combine the the art and science you know, to come up with this stuff. We did a lot of stuff very quickly. And don't look back because, you know, when you see some of those old videos, you just go like,
1: ah.
0: <laughs> but at the time, they looked amazing. They really did look amazing. And some of them eh, kind
1: of hold up a little bit.
0: <laughs> I enjoy looking
1: at the old stuff. I mean, you know, it's it's so cool. I, I share that with my students to, to show them what things used to look like. And they, right. they find it hard to believe that there was ever a
0: time before Right now, yeah. Back when wireframes were high tech, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Robert Abel was doing a wireframe little airplane flying through uh, yeah. a wireframe scene, and we all, you know, our jaws were dropping at how cool and
0: mind was. blowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when how I did you? Uh, at NBC New York uh, with sports, I made a, a golf ball in wavefront, and I had it rotating on a monitor. And a sports producer came by, and he's like how did you, how did you shoot that golf ball that way? And I said, it's, it's fake. There's no such thing. I just made it in the computer and his jaw dropped and he's like, that's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) And even then it was believable enough to fake him out, to think that, you know, that was a real golf ball. Um, that, um, you know, and, and that those are really early days. It was pretty crude by today's standards.
1: We didn't have quite the the polygon count that we can rely on today.
0: Rendering techniques, yeah,
1: and and uh, yeah, rendering speeds as well. I mean, it's it's amazing where we are today. Well, we'll we'll get to today in a little while. How did the job at Crawford then lead to working at
0: Industrial Light and Magic? I think it was at the High Museum of Art, Carl Rosendahl from PDI came to do a talk. He was showing some of the cool stuff that Pacific Data Images was doing at the time. And it was like dinosaurs made out of chrome that were running. I was like, how did you do that? That looks so cool. He talked about how people that have both kind of a math science and art background are like gold to them. You know, these are exactly the kind of people they want. And I was like, he's talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) T2 came out, Terminator 2, and I saw that, you know, kind of liquid metal character that ILM had made. And I was like, okay, I gotta go do this stuff. So I think it must have been after a sigraph or something like that, and I was super inspired. You know, back then you would mail a VHS tape to studios or you know you didn't have the internet to just send a movie file or anything like that. I sent out my info to Rhythm and Hughes in LA, to PDI in the Bay Area, and to Industrial Light and Magic think it was just those three and I got job offers from all three of them uh, so I was like oh wow okay well I guess this is serious I gotta think about moving <laughs> um, <laughs> and ILM had been doing some really cool stuff they were just finishing on Jurassic Park for God's sake. I was like, I got to get in on that dinosaur action somehow. Yeah. Took a job at ILM. Who hired you? John Burton and Jeff Light were like two of the key contacts there. Yeah. I think it was Doug Kay that headed up that CG department. And it was kind of weird because back then, you know, ILM had mostly done optical type stuff. And there was a small group of like computer graphics people that weren't in the union or anything that kind of like, oh, yeah, we don't know what they're up to. That's not never going to amount to anything. When you and I got involved, it it was a pretty small group before these companies ended up being thousands and thousands of people. I don't know if it was even 60 people or something like that. It was like within months, I became a senior technical director. It was weird. My first movie was Baby's Day Out, um, working with John Knoll. And John Knoll and his brother invented Photoshop. And I was like, what? I'm working with one of the guys that invented Photoshop. That's cool. And uh, Doug Smythe and others on that team. And I learned a lot working on that project. But it was weird because, you know, and Baby's Day Out, we had to have a CG City, Chicago, for those shots where the baby's looking down from the crane. I was the guy that was going to be making that city. And I was like, I just started here. And he's like, Yeah, but you're the 3D expert guy. I do that. I, it took me a little while to realize, oh, most of the people I'm working with here more 2D compositing type people. And I was kind of coming in on my show, first show as being like one of the experts on the team. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I barely know what I'm
1: doing. <laughs> you know, every project at ILM involved something that had never been sure. done before.
0: So what, what, what did you do that really hadn't been done? So little had been done to date. <laughs> um, I don't think ILM had done a, a major city um, and somebody else had modeled the city and done initial lighting setup. So I, I don't can't take credit for that stuff. There was some really nice work done there. There were some issues about, around rendering it that I was able to kind of sort out and speed up and make more efficient. There was a couple interesting things like the baby was up on this crane, this platform. So they shot the baby on this platform with a blue screen. The way it was set up on this rig, the whole platform kind of vibrated as it was moving up. And they could not stabilize that shot at all. Kind of looked like the baby was just jiggling on that big um, construction platform. And I think like three different people had tried to do it. And, you know, it wasn't my area of expertise at all, but I kind of looked at what they were doing and uh, talked to some of the guys that were doing the match move. And they showed me what they were doing. I said, hey, you know, I'll tell you what, do this for me. Give me a match move done this way, and I'm going to track this. And we'll see what happens. So I tracked it and used their match move in a way that I guess nobody had tried before. And the whole thing was nice and smooth. And John Knoll was like, how did you do that? I was like, well, I just blah, 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 blah. And and that that worked out well for me because then I became like, oh, this guy can do some cool stuff here that we haven't done before. You know, it's all about problem solving with this kind of work. So a lot of this stuff hadn't been done before. So you just figure it out and make it work. That's probably going to end
1: up being something that every single person I interview says at some point or another. Right. I had no idea how to do this, but we just kind of like figured it out. All right. So let's get into the cool stuff. Star Trek Generations. So so
0: what did you do on Star Trek Generations? So, There's this huge energy ribbon in space that's like gobbling up planets and and destroying things, it's not too easy to film energy ribbons. So somebody's got to make it. We started working on that, and I had some, I think, some concept art and and some reference and stuff for it. You know, initially I was told, like, "Hey, we really want you to like hand animate this, so we can really get." You know, th- these are some of the techniques we discovered on um, Jurassic Park, and we really want to use them here on this project too. And I was like, I, "I really think we should do it a different way," but I kind of struggled. You have all these tendrils and each one of them needs to move in an interesting way. It's a lot of animation. So, you know, we were kind of plodding along. I wasn't supposed to be doing it this procedural way. I was told not to do that. I was like, okay, forget it. I'm just going to stay late one night, really late one night. And then coming on Saturday too, it was kind of like on a Friday, I decided to do this. I applied some procedural techniques of just running some noise, fractal type noise through these tendrils to see what that would look like. Showed it in dailies on Monday to John Knoll. And there's like, whoa, that's what we've been looking for. How did you do that? I was like, oh, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I said, I did it procedurally. I'm like, And then it's like, it looks good. Let's go with that. <laughs> so sometimes you got to break the rules a little bit. It was a little bit of a stressful time, but once I kind of broke through that barrier, I was able to just really run with it. And we're able to bring all sorts of more sophistication to the animation and still have pretty decent control of this energy ribbon, which ultimately, yeah, um, James T. Kirk was consumed by the energy ribbon, as far as you know, from the from the film. So I never thought that I actually killed them, but maybe I did. And I love Star Trek. I really do. This was so exciting. I'm much more of a Trekkie than Star Wars. Star Wars is okay. I know that's going to be sacrilege to a lot of people listening to this, but Star Trek, that's that's where it's at. And super exciting. uh, We had to do a shot with the saucer section, you know, crashing into the planet. And we wanted to have the crew on the top of the saucer section all running away from the energy ribbon like that's going to help but anyway (laughs) it it helps the dramatic you're not going to be able to run away from the energy ribbon but so what we did is we got a camera i think it was up on the roof of c building or something like that and then in the parking lot we all had the 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 wardrobe from paramount um the actual wardrobe from the film and the tv show you could pick whether you want to be a science officer or a medical officer, or whatever you know, the different colored costumes, and put them on. So I got to wear a real Star Trek costume. My wife did too. So we were both extras that are about an inch high on the film. You won't recognize us, uh, but we we're on top of that saucer section running away. So that was, boy, I was I was living the life. I was just like I, I've I've reached nirvana now. I, you know, I can just call it quits now because I've been in a Star Trek movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's great. So not only did you kill Captain Kirk, but there's pixels of you
0: in the movie doing it. Yes. Let's move to Casper. What was your role on Casper? I got involved with that film pretty late. Um, Stefan Fangmeier and Dennis Murin were the VFX supervisors for that. They had some shots that they tried a few times and just couldn't final. So I was lucky to get this kind of crack crew, you know, like Greg Killmaster and Robert Maronick, some really, really good people in my crew of doing some, you know, special VFX work. And one of them was the the ghosts toward the end are kind of swirling around in the room, in that giant room with the staircase. And I remember Janet Healy's producer and Dennis Murin's there. And uh, I show it and somebody in the audience says, you know, one of the animators says, who did that? That's awesome. And Dennis says, says it. and janet says did you hear what dennis said and i said no what what did he say i didn't she he said the final and i said that's my first take i'm not gonna final it it's my first take and uh and she said okay okay go meet with dennis so i go meet with dennis and um dennis is a god of visual effects with all his academy awards so if you don't know who he is like Oh, my God, he's just done everything that can be done. Um, really wonderful person, um, too. He said, you know, okay, let's try modifying this a little bit, do another take, I did another take. Let's modify this a little bit, do another take, I did another take. Let's adjust this. So this goes on for like a week and a half, two weeks. We're making some adjustments. And he looks at that, and he's like, you know what, Henry? Your version was better. Just go back to your version and do whatever it is you wanted to do to it. <laughs> uh, so, and, and we did some other stuff with the ghost melting. Mitch Diotis, I think, was helping with this. They were dripping down, we were doing metaballs and stuff like this. It was really cool and, and fun work to do, To These kind of one-off weird shots. And I did a, a bunch of lighting also um, and came up, came up with a new rig, to new technique to get the little highlight in the eyeballs to work every time. So yeah, it was a really fun show. And really the first animated film to feature a CG lead character. That's a big deal. Casper was CG. He was the star of the movie, and he's, he's not real. We had something like 360 shots in the film, which was a huge number of visual effects shots. Today, that's nothing. There's thousands and thousands in, in any given film.
1: Let's move on to one of my favorite movies that uh, that I worked on with you, um, which was Twister. Yes, you were one of the CG soups. You and Habib, and uh, eventually you guys were nominated for an Oscar for that, which is really cool. So, give a little
0: background to uh, to your your work on Twister. Sure. You know, for Twister to get greenlit by the studio, they need to see a test to prove that you know we can actually make a convincing experience for the audience before they say, here's millions and millions of dollars to do this work and we're going to go film this stuff. Because really a film like that, wasn't possible even a year or two before this. So it was really cutting edge work. Like we were doing stuff with software that literally is just off the shelf. Habib had worked on that test and they really liked it with a tractor. And then Habib was on another show. They asked me to do the early visual development work on the design of the tornadoes themselves. You know, I worked with uh, a bunch of smart people like Chris White, who's now An amazing VFX supervisor at Weta Digital working on some huge films and and yourself and lots of other smart people. Also working with Stefan Vangmeyer again. We came up with some techniques to not only create the funnel of the tornado, but also, you know, kind of that whole dust trail that's left behind. We were using this software called Dynamation, which allows you to animate particles, and it had a scripting language in it, so you could make it dance, really. A lot of what was Dynamation went on to become a foundation for Maya, uh, which is a huge 3D package that is used in the industry today. Most of my work was in figuring out how to create those tornadoes and then training up a team to do that. And working with Michael Ludlum and others, we figured out how to do all the debris shots. We had tons of shots of debris flying. I was on set and they had a giant jet engine on set. The practical effects guys would be dropping all sorts of debris leaves and, and various things into the jet engine while the actors are acting it doesn't really work because actors are kind of like, they don't want all that stuff blowing into their face. <laughs> you know? so, so it's like you can't see their face while the um, debris is blowing at them. And then you probably end up with somebody getting injured. So the jet engine was useful for John Fraser's team that did that stuff was useful for a lot of practical effects, but, when it came to debris that was anywhere near the actors, we had to simulate that ourselves.
1: Someone said that people were getting sick because the uh, fan was blowing not only the debris, but, but water into their faces.
0: Oh, well, yeah, how- there was. So off the sides of the roads, there were these ditches. There's that whole sequence where they're hiding underneath that little bridge in this ditch and there's water that's been sitting there that who knows what's in that water <laughs> yeah um, one of the actors had to go to the hospital but you know like bill paxton oh my god what a wonderful human being it was great to work with him just the sweetest man in the world He'd play frisbee with us during breaks and hang out with us and eat lunch and you know a lot of actors that go back to their trailers and not talk to anybody on the crew but bill was a really sweet man and jan de Bont was all about getting the shots he was a lot of energy and um, a pretty intense uh, director, but it was, um, I think, my first time on set. So it was really fun learning how films are actually shot um, and, and being there to uh, help supervise it, to make sure we got the plates back that we needed. And it's funny, in the interview, as Dion de Bont did after the movie came out, he said, there's only one real tornado in the film. See if you can spot which one's the real one. You know, and I thought that was so clever of him to do that, but there are no real tornadoes in that movie because uh, the insurance uh, is set up such that if there's any tornado within, I don't know, 10 miles or something like that, we had to shut down the, and there were several times they just sent us back to our hotels because it was like, yeah, there's a tornado near here. The exact thing we want to film, but we can't uh, for insurance reasons. Uh, So, you know, there's a practical side of it like that, too. They didn't want anybody getting hurt by the tornadoes. Tell us about
1: what it was like with the uh, Academy
0: Award nomination for Twister and going to parties
1: and, you know, what you got to do Oh, my.
0: That That is so, so much fun. Getting that nomination is just huge. I like to refer to myself as an Academy Award loser. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but you go to a luncheon. So they have this nominees luncheon. You're sitting at the table with all these other amazing people and all these other actors. And it's weird because you're in a room where you recognize a lot of people, but you've never met them. And so you have this great luncheon and they kind of explain how the award show goes, and they take a picture of everybody. And then you go to the Academy Awards, which is a fantastic experience for Barbara and I. You know, there's a, the, the dinner afterward. Uh, Vanity Fair puts on a party. And so we went to this restaurant uh, where they had the, the after party. It's a so, such a bizarre experience walking into a room where literally almost every single person in this room you've seen before, but you've never met them. And it's just one star after another star after another star after another star. I saw Tom Cruise off on the side uh, talking to a reporter. And, you know, as I got there, I went to the bar and I just got a, a, a stiff drink. <laughs> I was like, well, we lost. Well, let's get drunk. Um, and uh, and Barbara's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm going to go talk to Tom Cruise. She's like, you can't do that. And I was like, why not? <laughs> so I uh, went over and kind of got near him and Coincidentally, the interview ended. So Tom Cruise is sitting alone. So I went up and introduced myself. And super wonderful, nice man, he genuinely was interested in speaking to us, not distracted, but, you know, it was just great eye contact. Cameron Crowe was one of the people that we had lunch with, and he was a double nominee. And then he, he's like, Henry, how are you doing? Let me introduce you to some of my friends. And he took us around. So here's Woody Harrelson, here's Courtney Love. And, you know, all these other um, people he was hanging with. And yeah, it was it was a pretty cool experience.
1: That's something that uh, not many people get to do in the course of their careers. And quite frankly, I'm jealous as hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, and I'm I'm happy for you. That it, That's awesome. So now we can get back into
0: what happened after ILM. Yeah, Twister wrapped up. I heard about the studio DreamWorks that was starting up with Steven Spielberg and Katzenberg and Dave Geffen. And a friend of mine, Matt Elson, was working there. You know, he's like, hey, we're looking for people. And I actually, I'll back up just a little bit. Right before I started talking to them, they were starting these Star Wars prequels and we need somebody to go up to the ranch to meet with George about the Star Wars films he wants to do. I was the first person from ILM to go to the ranch and meet George and Rick McCallum as a production designer and really, really cool small team. But it was really interesting and exciting to see. And the chemistry just wasn't there. So I decided to go to DreamWorks instead, talking directly to Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was kind of recruiting me. They said that they're doing this animated film, Prince of Egypt. And they need somebody to part the Red Sea. <laughs> and how many people have that on their resume? I parted the Red Sea. <laughs> um, and I'd never done any animated films before. And I thought, wow, that could be fun. Let's go do that, you know, just something different. So moved down to LA. And my wife, Barbara, was working at Disney. On dinosaur and i was working at dreamworks we uh, had a great team we built up you know doug cooper was really instrumental and in, for parting the red sea you know as was so so many other people trying to do some of the stuff i was doing but in a stylized way that fit with an animated film and working with three directors and building a studio like literally plugging in computers Downloading software from scratch, not like ILM where everything's all set up. It was quite a challenge, but we managed to get it done. Um, We did some pretty advanced stuff, combining cell animation with CG and particle animation with RenderMan and Houdini. Using Houdini 1.0 as a really powerful VFX animation software. Um, We used the very first version of it. (laughs) Got some great support from the team that builds that side effect software.
1: That sounds like kind of a a theme of your career being the first to use a particular
0: technology there. I think David Allen was one of the guys on my team. Coop had this idea of like, well, if we get the traditional animators to just animate just like a little splash, we can instance the hell out of that splash and, you know, make it look like it's, it's gigantic, but close up, it'll look like they're hand-drawn droplets. So was that technique of trying to combine something that's hand-drawn with uh, the power of the computer to make something huge the other thing we had to do is put all these people in the scene you know, there really wasn't a way of course to hand draw all those people um, so I developed a technique with a, it's kind of a sprite technique it was very common today to make a walk cycle of these characters from all different points of view and then figure out where the camera is what angle we're seeing them and use the right, Uh, angle from that uh, sprite animation cycle to make it look like it was full of this giant crowd of people um, passing through the parted Red Sea. Technical stuff along with um, some artistry to kind of stay in style with the rest of the film. Well, that's great that you were able to take what the
1: artists could draw and then instance that in a CGI exactly. environment. So you, you were really using the best of both worlds of techniques. That's
0: really cool. Right, 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 right. And at that time, you know, my wife had just finished working on Toy Story. Uh, she was at Pixar when I was at ILM. Using CG for animated films was a brand new thing. And DreamWorks at the time very, was very emphatic that they're not gonna use computer graphics for a lead character. But after Shrek, that changed very quickly. <laughs> Again, it was one of those things, you just have to be fearless and go for it, work hard and collaborate with the smart people around you to make it happen.
1: And after Prince of Egypt, you uh, you worked on the Sandra Bullock film, Forces of Nature. What did you oh, do my. on that?
0: I think you were going to bring that one up too. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just,
1: I've got IMDB open right now, so I'm wow, just going okay. on to
0: the next. Oh, my. PDI was acquired by DreamWorks, and PDI was working on Shrek. So when I was done with Prince of Egypt, I did a little bit extra development work and some cool stuff with uh, DreamWorks, but PDI needed some help with some visual effects they were doing. So they asked if I could go up to the Bay area and work with them. And Richard Chung was heading up this cafe group at PDI that was the VFX side while Shrek was being made. So my wife was working at Shrek and I was working on visual effects there um, when we moved up to Los Altos. We did the um, wedding sequence where there's all these flower petals kind of flying around and flowing through the scene. We did a whole bunch of stuff on the film, but I think that's probably one of the most notable sequences. And I was able to use a lot of the tricks I had in my bag of how to animate. It's very similar to the debris I animated on Twister, to be honest, but it just had to be more graceful and beautiful. And, you know, it was for a wedding. And, and then that one, I was on set. And nice experience actually being the visual effects supervisor for the film. And you were on the set for all, all of the plate photography? uh yeah that related to the vfx yeah 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 it was all where were we? we were outside savannah somewhere yeah so did you actually like interact with the actors with sandra bullock you know we didn't interact with the talent that much um but yeah we were right there with them the other woman that was getting married she was in a, a wedding dress and we're on the set there's all these guys standing around and she's and it's kind of hot and she's just waiting for the scene to start she's like Well, I've got a wedding dress on. Does anyone want to marry me here? (laughs) (laughs) We've got Supernova. We've got
1: Mission Impossible 2. And then we go into AI, artificial intelligence, and
0: minority report. So where do you want to go with all of those? Mission Impossible 2 was a a fun film to work on, too. John Woo really likes having doves in his films. And uh, he wanted some doves to fly through this building that was on fire. And oddly enough, doves don't like to fly through fire. You know, They're smarter than that. Get the VFX guy in here to make the doves fly through. <laughs> we made the doves and we went down to LA to meet with him. And I had never met him before. So it was the first time I'm meeting him, showing him this dove shot. He doesn't say anything. He's like, just kind of nods to say hello. We go in He's he kind of signals, play it again, play it again, play it again. He's just signaling. I'm like, oh, crap, he really doesn't like it. I mean, he's watched this like five or six times. He's just looking for the words to tell me how bad it is. And then he takes me aside and just stares at me. And it's, all, it's like at least 30 seconds, and there's nothing. He's just staring at me. I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> and he, he says two words. He, he just stares at me, right in my eyes, and he says, more spiritual and then leaves the room. I should have known, you know, that this is maybe the reason why he puts Doves in his films. That was that was a really cool experience uh, working with John Woo. And we gave them a bit of a glow and, you know, changed the speed. They were flapping their wings and, and stuff like that to make them more graceful and more angelic in a way. And it was a final. Now you move into Spielberg. Yes. Okay. So one of my dreams all along, has been to work with Steven Spielberg. Um, The first date I ever went out on uh, with my girlfriend here, actually in Minnesota, where I am again, was to see Jaws. And I remember (laughs) trying to be really cool. And then the shark attacks and I go, ah! (laughs) I was like, no, no, I'm supposed to be cool. I'm on a date, you know? Uh, But, uh, uh, you know, he, he was the master. ILM was doing a lot of the VFX for Minority Report and AI. There was some additional work they needed done. And because Spielberg was one of the owners and you know founders of DreamWorks and PDI was part of DreamWorks, it was like, hey, why not have PDI help out on this? Um, so it was a really great opportunity to work directly with him, for him. Uh, some of the stuff we did was invisible effects, like Haley Joel Osment. You could see his breath, but he's supposed to be a digital person. Uh, I mean, a, um, uh, a robotic kind of person. Um, Uh, being not a human being so we had to get rid of the breath and stuff like that Uh, but we also did uh, some gigolo joe transformations where he's combing his hair it changes into a different style so it can appeal to um, you know somebody else depending on what they were looking for jude law was very cool to work with on that and we also did this uh, they're hitchhiking to the city they show this hologram of this dancing girl um, to get this ride And I was doing the second unit photography. It was great to get a chance to work with Spielberg. He knew of me because he was executive producer on both Casper and Twister. I think as some of these, you know, tougher shots were final. Of course, they shared everything with him. So, you know, when I first met him, he was like, oh yeah, you did that shot. And it's like, oh yeah, wow. You know something about me. I'm nobody. You're Steven Spielberg. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that was kind of cool. So if you remember the film, Flesh Fair was this, of like circus environment yeah they were killing really all cool.
1: the robots for for fun
0: yeah right and um on the stage was the band was ministry uh that was playing and i was a fan of ministry's music and i was like oh my god i'm i'm getting paid to be at a ministry concert with all this cool stuff happening <laughs> so the, the the little teddy bear was a puppet kind of thing that it was sometimes CG that ILM was doing, and sometimes a puppet. Um, so we had to do some rig removal and stuff for that, and some different compositing work um, to get it to do what we wanted to do. For people who don't know CGI terms, what does rig removal actually mean? Ah, yeah, sure. This puppet had a. There was a few different types of puppets, but let's say it was a puppet that had some rods that is controlling it. So there might be a puppeteer that's moving the arms with some some thin rods and. When you see it in the film, you don't see those rods. It's because uh, people on my crew tediously went through and removed them frame by frame. But, uh, we did some of that stuff in Mission Impossible too. It's just some of that uh, work that needs to be done that you don't even really notice. There was also uh, like a mechanical version of the teddy bear that must have weighed 100 pounds. It was just this not that big of a bear and it looks all cute and cuddly, but oh, all this armature inside it, this thing was so heavy. Uh, this really brilliant guy from MIT that had come up with a way to program it and animate it. Really early days of doing stuff like that. It was a good show. Um, And that kind of gave me the opportunity to work on Minority Report. Probably the most memorable thing we did were those spiders that are going down that tenement uh, hallway. They kind of get underneath the door and they come into the bathroom uh, where Tom Cruise is in this bathtub that's filled with ice. Cause he's trying to hide from them. And, and when we were filming that um, I'm on the set and Steven likes to film like real rooms, not rooms that have fake walls that move away to get, kind of really get the feeling of shooting in a real room. There's a small bathroom. And in that bathroom is Tom Cruise, Steven Spielberg, and Janusz Kaminski, his director of photography and me, <laughs> take a picture of this like which person does not belong in here <laughs> um, and I was like wow this is cool I get to be in the same room with these guys you know making a movie um, and it's a bathroom yeah, the bathroom of all places right <laughs> you were in a bathroom
1: with with Steven Spielberg
0: Yeah, yeah 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 we came up with a way to you know animate these spiders so they're Kind of creepy and intelligent. I was actually talking to Tom Cruise and, you know, giving him some idea of what the spiders are going to be like. And cool. And I was on another part of the set at one point and I hear this voice, Henry, Henry. I'm like, no, oh, somebody's calling my name. I'm like, oh my God, that's Tom Cruise. I better go quick. <laughs> so it's like, he actually remembered my name. He is a re- really sweet guy, but a real perfectionist too. Uh, he is holding his breath under the water for real. For the longest time, we're all like, when's he going to come up? Is he okay? And he comes up and uh, I think Steven said, yeah, that's good. We got it. And he's like, no, I, I can do better. I can do better. He wanted to do like three takes, I really respect the way he works with his craft. is is really amazing. We did that and um, we did, you know, like those little wooden balls that go through that machine that tell them who committed the murder. Um, there was actually a physical prop that did that, but it was a little bit clunky. It was, you know, it was High tech as you could make it at that time. Uh, so we actually rebuilt that entire thing. That's also kind of a theme of
1: working in this business: is every, everybody thinks you know, some there's one person who does something, and it's not, and it's really nice. You know, you're you're mentioning name after name after name of all these other people that uh, that were in there because it's never one person working in a vacuum, and there's always a, a, a team of people. So yeah. that's yeah. really cool. Yeah.
0: One more story from this. So um, Stephen was saying, you know, the shot you see at the bottom of the spider. And he was saying, you know, Henry, I want to see how the spider works somehow. And he was kind of saying, you know, like a watch, but it's not mechanical. It's more high tech than that. I had been at the Monterey Bay Aquarium with our girls, uh, saw the deep sea jellyfish there. And, you know, their tentacles have these bioluminescent little lights that kind of like run through their tentacles. And it just looks so cool. So I got back to the studio and talked to the artist and I said, we're going to do some radiating jellyfish bioluminescent lights on the bottom of this spider and try that. He didn't specifically ask for that, but I thought, you know what, I think he's going to like it. I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> and and he did. He thought it was great. He was like, OK, that's the final. You got that. So you never know where inspiration is going to come from. I Just keep your eyes open. Everybody
1: has a degree of creativity that they can add to a shot that, uh, that they've been you know, assigned to do. And, and you can add little personal touches to things and, and discover
0: them, you know that, that the people above you like them and, and they become part of the movie itself. That's why I loved working with Spielberg because he has a specific idea in mind of what he wants. And he's great at communicating that. He's also very open to ideas. If there was something we weren't doing right, and there are some shots we messed up on AI, he let us know no mincing of words is like fix that he didn't want to know why it was messed up he just wanted to know when it was going to be fixed and when he could see it again it's like okay it's all business let's get this done no problem on minority report there were were a couple times like even in that bathroom sequence where i suggested we shoot it slightly differently because i had an idea for how the spider can animate and what the camera move would do and he turned to janice he's like yeah let's do it that way let's do it like henry said and uh, I was like, what? He's, he's going to use my shot. <laughs> these wow. things are all storyboarded out. I didn't make it into the film, it, it, it was on the cutting room floor. But I love how collaborative he was because, you know, as a director, you can't know the right thing to do in every single little detail of every little thing. You got to get some good people and trust them. And I learned a lot working with him. That was a fantastic experience. He was a really, really great guy. Well, now let's move into your video game life. Yes. After Minority Report, Shrek had just done so well, way beyond expectations. I think DreamWorks said, you know, we don't want to be in this visual effects business. There's really not much margin in it. It's kind of, unfortunately, a race to the bottom. It's work for hire. It's honestly not that great a business model. And I was bidding lots of other movies but what you'd have to do is try, kind of bid less than the competing. So you're trying to bid enough to be able to pay the people that are working on it and keep the doors open, but bid less than the next guy. And there's only a few clients, a few studios to work for. I was becoming as Habib had coined, like one hour photo visual effects stuff. <laughs> um, so a little bit of the magic was lost for me and I'd done some cool stuff and could have continued to do it. And I've seen some amazing work since then colleagues of ours have done. I was up shooting a commercial, a Kool-Aid commercial in Vancouver and um, talked to my wife and I was like, Vancouver, British Columbia is amazing. You should check this place out. So she came up with the girls and we looked around and I was like, this place is so cool. Uh, I think it was Glenn Entis, who's been this fantastic mentor for me over many, many years. Um, one of the founders of PDI and he started DreamWorks Interactive, which was later sold to Electronic Arts. He said, you know, Henry, when you're up there, you should really go meet with EA uh, Electronic Arts. And I thought it'd be this like little building in a strip mall or something. No, it's this huge, beautiful building on a hill, really impressive. And I didn't really know that much about games, to be honest. But while we were shooting, every break we had, there was a PlayStation 2, I think it was at the time, that the crew was always playing games on and i was like wow these games are kind of cool they're kind of fun they don't look that great to me you know i think the graphics could look a lot better but uh, the crew was playing these games all the time and i wasn't really much of a gamer but i went and uh, visited ea and they sent me home with a a stack of games one of the first games was ssx tricky Um, i was like this looks fun it's snowboarding i went and bought a ps2 started playing that with my daughter valerie and we had so much fun like beating levels and challenging each other. Um, Steve Rekschaffner is the leader of the SSX franchise. He had asked Glenn, he said, Glenn, you know, I'm looking for an art director, but, you know, I looked in the phone book, like, how do I get an art director? (laughs) And Glenn said, you know, you need a visual effects supervisor. And he's like, what's a visual effects supervisor? They interviewed me and they said, how do you want, how about working on SSX with us? And I was like, God, I love playing that game. That's really fun. But, you know, I do movies and and then we got, kind of got excited about this. 9-11 happened right then. My wife's mother had worked in the Twin Towers that went down. Ooh, wow. So we were kind of, she wasn't there at the time, fortunately. She had retired since then, but we were kind of devastated by that. We had this opportunity to go live in Canada and do some video games. I was like, well, I haven't done that before. I've done uh, television. I've done film visual effects. I've done feature animation haven't done these video games things, let's go give that a try. Um, so we moved to Vancouver, I was the art director on SSX three, I'm still proud of the work we did on that game uh, It was super fun. And I used a lot of the stuff I learned in film. In creating that game did a lot of the Need for Speed games. There was a team called Black Box, downtown Vancouver, that was working on those. And consulted with them initially as they were finishing it to put some polish on the game. And I also was busy recruiting people. So I actually recruited Habib to EA. He did some amazing work on Need for Speed Underground. Oh, my God, he just killed it. Oh, so and I worked with EA Sports. I was a chief visual officer of EA Sports, briefly a chief visual officer of EA Period. Yeah. And then I went to work in the UK for a bit, which was really fun with Criterion, a really great studio, EA studio there. The first Need for Speed game I made was Need for Speed Hot Pursuit 2. And this was a new Need for Speed Hot Pursuit. And I think still to this day is the highest Metacritic rated uh, Need for Speed game. When I first got into games, I'd noticed people playing games on the set in between shoots. I was surprised by how simplistic everything looked. You know, some of the early work I did on SSX3, we were able to push things a bit, but now game engines are being used for virtual production, actually ending up in films as, you know, backgrounds. It's amazing. Some of the new developments with stuff we've seen, demos for Unreal 5 Engine, for example. Wow, amazing lighting happening in real time. And there's always been potential to do some great imagery, but it happening in real time has been the challenge. Just in my lifetime, it's amazing what's happened. Did you have polygon limits? If we can do more polygons, then we can make a rounded object look more rounded. In old school games, you may have seen a rounded object that looked very faceted, like it was an octagon or something like that. And that was just a limit of how many polygons you could push through the hardware. There's also things like overdraw, Which is how many layers of transparency you can draw. So, if you want to do smoke or VFX, you know, special effects kind of stuff, that became very challenging because for that one pixel on the screen, they'd have to calculate multiple times what that color should properly be. For it to look correct, I think the biggest thing really is lighting, honestly, and and animation, of course, with uh, more advanced global illumination type related techniques, you know, make everything look more believable. So even if a cube is very simple, if it looks like it really sits in that scene with the proper lighting and looks believable, and that makes a big difference. In
1: Need for Speed, you had trade-offs between whether you could do reflections or
0: right rain or you know what 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 was that what am i remembering yeah yeah you are so you know one of the things we've done in the past is tried to throw a lot of visual features into the game and we can do that if we don't turn them on all at the same time so i'll give you a specific example need for speed hot pursuit is a game i worked on with criterion in the uk uh quite a while ago and that's like 2010 2009 in that that range and i wanted to have wet roads have the rain falling, have the roads be reflective. And we had some technology to do that. The goal of the game was to have five cars on the screen at the same time running, I think it was 30 FPS or 60 FPS, but you know, at whatever our frame rate was at that time. For the longest time, it was like, yeah, we're not gonna get wet roads. We're just not gonna get wet roads. And then as the game developed, as we got toward the end, I was kind of like, you know what? There's a big parts of the game where there's only two cars on the screen. Could we turn on wet roads for those? Working with the engineers and the brilliant technical artists, you know, I gave it a try and it looked amazing um, and it worked. So when you play the game and there are five cars on the road, you didn't see the wet roads, but nobody noticed that. I even asked people in the industry. They was like, wow, those wet roads look amazing. said, well, did you notice they they don't always happen? It's like, no, 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 they're always on. It's like, no, they're not. (laughs) We just tricked you. (laughs) So a lot of this is um, just that illusion of detail. And sometimes in games, that opening cinematic sequence where you see the one drop falling off of the leaf gives you the impression that that's happening in the entire forest. Well, it's not. But, you know, this is uh, a way we can... Get get you to believe the world is more amazing than it really is. Worked with some really talented people like Alex Fry was a graphics engineer. Working in games is so different than film, but, you know, a lot of the same stuff still applies. And I had a lot of people asking me, especially when I was recruiting people like, well, why should I work in games? What's different about it? Well, in film, you've got a production designer, you've got an art director, you've got a location scout, you've got somebody doing wardrobe somebody doing casting, and you've got a VFX guy that's, you can't make the spider here, but all, everything else, you know, the lighting, the set, everything else has been decided by somebody else. But in games, it's a blank slate. As an art director, I was effectively the production designer, the location scout, the director of photography, you know, so many different hats you wear uh, to put the game together. It's a smaller screen, but a bigger canvas. It kind of took me back to the stuff I originally loved doing is more fine art is what I'm really into rather than all this stuff um and the stuff I learned in art school I was like wow I can craft an image from scratch here rather than you know just adding the monster to the image for me that was creatively more rewarding um and I've been doing games ever since every once in a while I'll see a movie in the movie theater and I go oh that's amazing I wish I worked on that And then I'll talk to some of the people that worked on it and I'll go, oh God, I'm glad I didn't work on that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, you have to be on set at a moment's notice for months at a time. And if you've got a family, I had twin girls, Winnie and Valerie, and I did not want to be away from home uh, like you need to be as a VFX supervisor. In games, you can actually have a work-life balance.
1: And I know a lot of the companion fans are... In the UK because the companion is UK based. So, what what was it like working in the UK versus working in the States?
0: Oh, I so loved working in the UK. I was working in Guildford initially, and I was recently working in the UK again. So, two different times for a year and a half each. This is probably pretty predictable, but the crew would go out to the pub a couple times a week. And I just loved kind of like, oh, we're going out to the pub, learning the pub culture and getting to know people at the pub. All the craziness that ensued from that this most recent time living in london i actually said okay i'm not living in Guildford. if i'm gonna live here i'm gonna live in london i was looking around london is like i'm gonna live in covent garden <laughs> nobody lives in covent garden i lived right on floral street in covent garden right around the corner from the tube stop which is pretty much ground zero for tourism and everything but you could walk to soho and all the art galleries and uh, art museums, which is really what, how I entertained myself mostly. And oh, the curry, the Indian food. Oh, my God, I could eat that every day. Such great restaurants and culture in oh, the Tate, the Tate Modern, uh, Tate Britain. I became a member right away. I, I just love living and working there. Um, what a great experience. All the concerts and, um, and and the super smart and talented people I got to work with. That's awesome. So
1: to wrap up, what are you working on now? What's the future looking like? And, uh, you know, are, are you are you winding down? Well,
0: I'm trying to. <laughs> the past year or so due to the pandemic, I was working from home. I decided to move back to Minneapolis, where I'm from. And have lots of family here because I can work from home here. I decided I don't want to work full time anymore. i become a contractor studio in the UK, uh, Stellar Entertainment, I'm working with, is doing some really cool stuff. We're working on some new IP that's super exciting, but I can't tell you about it. I'd have to kill you, just like James T. Kirk. (laughs) Um, And uh, I'm also working with Glue Mobile, which was recently acquired by EA. So this is my fourth time working for EA. I'm working on something completely different. You'll never believe this. I haven't told you this, but I'm working on Design Home, which is kind of like an app or a game. A lot of people that play it don't think they're actually playing a game. It's a mobile game. And they're doing interior design is what they're doing. So this is a game that my wife and sisters would play, which is like, like, wow, this is cool. I get to work work on something that middle-aged women are the primary audience. just not usually what I've done before. And working in mobile games is completely different than console games. I'm trying to kind of narrow things down. There are all these really cool projects and people I've worked with before that Um, are really nice people that are asking me to help them. But it's really hard to say no. I keep myself busy and really would love to be doing more of my own own artwork, honestly. Well, I'm
1: looking forward to the time where we see Henry a fine artist. (laughs) That would be awesome. That would be great. So thank you, Henry. This was an absolutely fantastic few minutes. I don't know how long we've been talking. What I think is going to be interesting to our viewers is that they never think of a person having a career that covers multiple projects. And I think by hearing, you know, your evolution today, people are realizing, wow, a CG artist doesn't do just one thing. Then they go on
0: to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And and I think, Ed, you and I were lucky to get involved in the industry at a time. When it was just taking off, it's so many different ways computer graphics are used. So I'm really excited about your podcast series and looking forward to listening to your future ones with uh, with other people too. Thank you for doing this.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Henry, for being here and being on the Companion